Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Alan. If you brought your Bibles with you, open up to Hebrews uh, chapter 1, where we're going to be this morning, and feel free to bring, uh, take the sermon outline out as well. Can you guys hear me okay? Is my mic on? doesn't sound like, is it on? Okay. I think I'm just uh, gun shy because at 8 I forgot to turn it on. So. All right, uh, Hebrews chapter 1. We're in, getting towards the end of our year of the Bible, um, and uh, I just a quick note before we get into today's sermon that uh, next week I'm asking you guys to read all of the general letters. If you're reading along with us as we go from January to December, from Genesis to Revelation, this uh, last couple weeks here we're going to finish all the letters that are not written by Paul, so that's like James and First and Second Peter, uh, the letters to John and Jude. And I know it looks like a lot on your sheet. If you look at, oh man, I have to read seven books of the Bible. But half of them are only a chapter each. And so next week you're going to have a bunch of rocks to throw in the barrel in the lobby if you read all seven of those books. So I hope you stick with it. I, I know it's a busy time, but I hope you keep, keep pushing towards the end and read through the rest of the Bible uh, with us. If you're new here and you haven't done any of that, you know, James is a great book, which is what we're going to talk about next week. Read the book of James this week, and I think it'll be really helpful for you. All right, but today we're in Hebrews, and uh, in, if I could summarize Hebrews in one word, it'd be the word wonder, wonder. And so we're going to talk about the wonder of Christmas and the wonder of Jesus today. I, I love that wonder is so entwined with the Christmas season. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, we asked guys what your favorite movie is, uh, your favorite Christmas movie, and I said Die Hard, but a lot of them said It's a Wonderful Life. Um, you know, potato, potato. And uh, wonder is so tied to how we experience and long to experience Christmas, isn't it? For those of us who have kids or grandkids, maybe who are young at home, we, we really want them to have a wonderful experience. We want them to have a sense of wonder and awe at the things they see. And it's so fun to get to see young kids especially have a sense of wonder at Christmas lights that you yourself didn't have to put up if you just walk them to someone else's house. Or, you know, the look, of, uh, the look on their face when they open toys on Christmas morning. Or the sense of awe when you go see man-made snow at the Queen Mary. Or, um, or when they see like a plate of Christmas, like a whole table full of Christmas cookies. You see how big their eyes get. Right? And there's nothing wrong with encouraging wonder and celebrating wonder in your kids and grandkids this Christmas season. Right? I love to see Andy and Aaron have a sense of wonder at all those things. And I love to see Anna's sense of wonder when she sees a ceiling fan, because she's only six weeks old. Um, so I, I'm not disparaging the pageantry of Christmas or the wonders of Christmas, but I, I do wonder how much wonder there is in us as adults this Christmas season. I wonder for you how much wonder you have around Christmas. And 
uh, and I think wonder is a virtue. I think wonder is something that's helpful for you. And I'm concerned if for you or me or any of us as adults, we've engaged Christmas uh, with a Grinch-like attitude or a grumpy attitude or a cynical attitude, and we've lost a sense of wonder about Christmas. You know, if instead of seeing a table full of treats and sweets, we have a sense of wonder as a child, we just see it as like a pathway to diabetes and weight gain. <laughs> like, uh, you know, you open a bunch of toys and you think, oh, that's just a lot of credit card debt. I don't like that at all. <laughs> Snow, you just think, oh, someone has to shovel that. That's awful. I don't want that. Or, or Santa, I'm not, well, I'm not going to bring up Santa. Um, <laughs> because culture is going to exhort you this month. A lot of advertisers are going to exhort you. Be a kid this Christmas. Have a sense of wonder. Have a sense of delight. Have it, you know, by giving us money, you know, by going to Disneyland or Knott's Berry Farm or whatever. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a sense in which that can be fun. But I, I think that's going to ultimately fail you if that's the only source of wonder. If you try to convince yourself as a 48-year-old to have the sense of wonder of an 8-year-old, you're essentially going to just do a lobotomy on your sense of wonder. Right? But it's too great a loss to just give up on it. And so advertisers will say, well, you just need to double down. You just need to get something bigger to have a sense of wonder at. So get a car, right? Get a Lexus. Then you'll have a sense of wonder, or your spouse will have a sense of wonder. By the way, that always has to get bigger and bigger for that to work. Consumerism has to keep growing to give us a sense of wonder. Ten years ago, it was buy one car. This year in Christmas advertising, have you noticed this? It's buy two cars, right? Next year, it's going to be buy three cars. Right? If, you, if you want to have the same rush, you've got to increase the size of consumption. But we can't give up on wonder either. We should be in awe. We should have a sense of delight in what is greater than we understand. If we give up on wonder, especially around Christmas, we give up on gazing at something great, on something wonderful. And I imagine you know where this is going at church and, you know, as a Christian. The only thing that will always give us a sense of wonder or is capable of always giving us a sense of wonder is something infinite, something that we could never outgrow, something that we could never fully understand, that's the person of Jesus. Christmas wonder at its root should be rooted in the person of Jesus and the miracle of God becoming man. And so in our time in Hebrews today, and in the, the book as a whole, I hope you'll notice this theme of wonder. And I hope you'll be reminded of the emotion of wonder. Right? Not to try to convince you to go back to, you know, when you were seven, but to sense that, that emotion from your seven-year-old self as a, a pointer to what your adult self should aspire to, a sense of wonder and looking at what Christmas is all about, that God has become flesh. So to do that, we're going to look at the first few verses in the book of Hebrews. Since this is our only sermon in the book of Hebrews, as we go through this year of the Bible, a quick uh, couple words about what this book is. Um, it's one of the few books in the New Testament that's anonymously written, uh, at the end of the day, we just don't know who wrote Hebrews. It's not in the Bible. There's no real answer from the church fathers. Um, if you want to write a PhD dissertation on it, you can suggest that it was written by Paul, Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila, Silas, Luke, and the list goes on and on and on. And that can help you get a degree, but it doesn't really answer the question. Whoever wrote it, it was received by the early church. Um, they were apparently a friend of Timothy, based on chapter 13. And it was received as scripture early in the church's history. It's a beautiful, complex book full of allusions and quotations from the Old Testament. And it's titled Hebrews probably because the assumed recipients were Hebrew Christians who were very well acquainted with the Old Testament. It is such a beautiful book in part because it has such poetic language. 
It's probably the most difficult Greek, uh, the most difficult Greek language to read in the New Testament because of its complex arguments and complex sentence structure. It uses a lot of obscure vocabulary, a myriad of Old Testament quotations. And so my memorizing it in Greek this week for you guys, that was really hard. So I hope you appreciate it. I did not do that. I did not do it. Um, but really, in that complexity, I hope you don't mistake that for thinking that it's difficult to understand, uh, or at least impossible to understand. It, it, it may be difficult. Because really, it boils down to this theme of wonder, I think. It's that Jesus is greater than everything that's come before him. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the priests. He's greater than the sacrificial system. He's greater than Moses. That's really the outline of the book of Hebrews. And then in the midst of all those, Jesus is greater, and we should have a sense of wonder at how great he is, come these exhortations, sort of like uh, choruses in the middle of the song, saying, because of his superiority, don't give up on him. Don't give up on following him when things get difficult. And this is really why I want you to, to celebrate wonder this Christmas, because I want you to hear those warning passages that Hebrews marks out for us. Because I think what, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that when we gaze on the, on the superiority of Jesus, when we marvel at how wonderful he is, we want to move towards him. The more we reflect on how great Jesus is, the more we want to cling to him. The more, the, the, the more amazed we are at what he has accomplished and what he has done for our benefit, the more sense of wonder that evokes in our soul, the more we want to clutch onto his legs. And the inverse is true as well. When we stop being amazed by Jesus, when we stop having a sense of wonder that God has become flesh, when we think that we've got it all figured out, we tend to push back on Jesus and walk away from him. And the problems of this world crowd out our faith. And so this is really why I want wonder for you. It's not so that you'll be agape at a tree. <laughs> it's not so that you'll be amazed by snow, but so that you'll cling tightly to the person of Jesus this Christmas season. This theme of wonder begins at the very start of the book as the author contrasts Jesus with what's come before him. In Hebrews 1.1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Someday I'd love to do a whole series, or at least a sermon, on the idea that Jesus is the creator of the world, but that I'll have to save for, save for another day. What Hebrews wants us to hear is that Jesus is the best way for us to know what God is like. Yes, the prophets of old, the prophets of the Old Testament showed us glimpses of what God was like, like gaps in a fence. People could gaze through and see a part of the whole. But the Son of God himself has come, and he has shown us completely what God is like. Jesus is greater than the prophets because they spoke truly about God, but only in the small part they knew. That it's said here that they spoke in many ways and at many times. This idea in many ways gets across that they were like pinpricks in a piece of paper, right? They could, they could see through all these variety of small holes a part of the hole, but they couldn't see the whole thing. But now Jesus has come and shown us what God is like. Jesus speaks as the heir of all things, the one who is able to speak fully and truly about God. And this isn't just the author of Hebrews' idea. This was Jesus' idea about himself. I mean, think about the Gospel of John. In John 12, Jesus says, I speak nothing of my own authority, but only as the Father gives me to say. Or John 5, the, the Son only does what he sees his Father doing. That's how Jesus describes himself. 
Or in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. And this isn't just Jesus' conception of himself, but it's how the Father sees his Son as well. Right? At Jesus' baptism, at the very beginning of his ministry, what does the Father say from heaven? This is my Son who I love, with whom I am well pleased. And then what's his exhortation to us? Listen to him. Right? See, our, our command from God is to listen to his Son, to know what he is like. This should give us a sense of wonder that the one who's been in the very throne room of God can reveal what God is like. And, and wonder, I don't know, there's this normal sense of like, it's amazing to be with someone who's been there in the room, right? I just would love to hear what it was like. You were there, could you just tell me what it was like? Yesterday was the 78th anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attacks on our country, uh, December 7th, 1941. And uh, Pearl Harbor kind of has a special place in our family. My, my dad especially loves Pearl Harbor. Um, and so we went there about 15 years ago and uh, got to go as a family and see this place. And part of why it's special in our family is that my grandfather was stationed there during the war. He's been with the Lord for about 30 years, but um, he was, I like to say he was injured during World War II at Pearl Harbor. He was not injured during the bombing of Pearl Harbor, but he is where I get my red hair from and pale complexion. And he tried to have his shirt off all day working on the ships with everyone else who had darker complexion. And he got sunburned so bad he had to be in the infirmary for two weeks. <laughs> So, I mean, I consider him a war hero, but maybe not everybody. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> it's, not, it's not really relevant to the sermon. Uh, but while we were there, we were visiting Pearl Harbor, and we we're, were seeing all the, the places where this happened. And this was 15 years ago, and so there was a veteran who had been there the day of the bombings who was uh, available to take pictures and to answer questions and to sign books. And people were lined up just to ask, you were here when this happened, like you were in the space could you just tell me what it's like to be here? And this is, you know, a, a veteran, a hero, but, but just a man like you and I. Like, how much more sense of wonder should we have that the Son of God has come to be near us? We don't have to guess what God is like, but we have seen him in Jesus himself. As Jesus describes in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. As Paul writes in Colossians 1, 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, just a, a quick aside, a, a contrast of what this means. Now, if Jesus is the image of the invisible God, if he really is the one who has revealed what God is like, if he really is the Son of God from eternity past who has become flesh and who has died for your sins and my sins and the sins of the whole world so we might be with God, he should be Lord of our life. And if he's not, then he is a crazy person, right? He is not a good moral teacher. And sometimes we'll hear in the culture people say, you know, I don't know about all that religious stuff you guys say, but I, Jesus has some good things to say about living life. Like pretending to be God? Like, he, you're not a good moral teacher if you lie to people and say that you're the son of God and you're not, right? That, that's not a good moral example for any of us. So I hope we see in Christmas not a, um, I hope we see in, in Christmas a dividing line for you and for me and, and, and for everyone that Jesus marks out in the world. Either he is who he claims to be or he's a dangerous person to himself and to others. But there's no grounds for leaving him as just a good moral teacher. Well, because Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the ex exact imprint of God, so he's described in verse 3, his revelation surpasses anything the prophets revealed. This is what Hebrews 1.3 says. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I can't think of another verse in the New Testament that so clearly describes 
that Jesus is God and that he's a distinct person from the Father. He's described as the radiance of the glory of God. Okay, so you guys have been going through this year of the Bible with me. We've, we've been going through the whole scriptures. So you might remember in the Old Testament, every once in a while, the topic of the glory of God would come up. Like in the Exodus, uh, it would say that the glory of God was like a pillar of fire who would lead Israel by night, right? It says in First uh, and Second Samuel that when the temple has the glory of God come down, it fills everything around it, right? It says in Ezekiel that the glory of God leaves the temple because of Israel's sin. The glory of God represented God's presence with his people. The glory of God represents the holiness of God. And Hebrews says, that is Jesus. What a remarkable claim, right? What does this mean? He says that he's the radiance of the glory of God. And he's using here like an example from astronomy. So just like the sun has both its, uh, its actual ball, how's that for an astronomy phrase? how there is the sun proper, and then there are the rays of the sun, the radiance of the sun. Um, The author of Hebrews says, we see the same thing with God, that just as there is God himself, and then there is the rays of God, the radiance of the glory of God, that's what we see in Jesus. And we can't, just like we can't separate the sun from its rays, we can't separate God the Father from God the Son. How do you get sunburned? Is it the sun itself or the rays of the sun? I don't know, it doesn't matter if you end up in the infirmary, Well, the same thing's true with God, right? That Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the effect of God on us. He's described as the exact representation of the Father, the one who helps us to see what God is like, the one who ends the guessing games about God. Because of that, I I give you a question in your your prayer, uh, questions for prayer and discussion at the end of the sermon outline that asks this. How would looking at Jesus help you understand God better? Sometimes people, well-meaning people will say, you know, I like Jesus, but I don't like the God of the Old Testament. And, and while I get the emotion behind that, that's really not an option for the Christian because what Scripture describes is that Jesus is the exact representation of his Father. He's God in human flesh. He's the one who helps us understand what God is like. So a question for you to pray about and think about this week in light of this passage is, God, how can I understand you better in light of what I see in Jesus? And conversely, how can I understand Jesus better in what I've read in the Old Testament? Well, these questions are, are really important for us to think about and because Jesus does show us what God is like. We're going to spend all of 2020 and the sermons coming up next year looking at the person of Jesus. Uh, from January to December, we're going to go through the life of Christ. We're going to go through some of the teachings of Jesus. We're going to go through the argument that Jesus is God. That'll be the focus all of next year so that you and I can help reorient and reorganize our lives around the person of Jesus, knowing that he shows us what God is like and that what he has accomplished in life should be the guiding principles for ours as well. All right, well, part of representing God, sharing in God's nature, being of the same glory, is having the same power. Having the same power. Hebrews says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Man, what a, what a quick line to gloss over with our eyes, but an amazing one to reflect on. It should give us a sense of wonder, right? Last week we talked about how, how God creates the world through simply his breath and his speech, and how when we say that scripture is God-breathed, we see that in line with what God has breathed out and spoken out through all of biblical history. But it says in Hebrews that Jesus is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. It is a wonderful and mind-boggling thing for us to grasp what Jesus does. And part of that is because we're so insulated from creation, right? We're, most of us live in such a concrete, humanly explainable existence. But sometimes we go somewhere expansive. We go to the Grand Canyon 
or Yosemite or the North Shore of Oahu, or we take a trip to the aquarium and we see some fish that lives hundreds of feet below the sea that people have never seen before, or we, we turn on TV and we hear someone from NASA talking about how vast the cosmos are. And what Hebrews 1.3 says is, Jesus did that. Jesus does that. Jesus spoke that. Jesus upholds that. Jesus gives us a sense of wonder at the creation around us, and he upholds it by the word of his power. Now, this isn't, when I say that we should have a sense of wonder, I'm not saying that we should abandon science or that we should ignore scientific answers for how these things operate in the world. Um, to have a sense of wonder doesn't mean that you should just ignore um, biological realities of, um, of how fish and space and uh, creation interact with one another. But it, it's a different argument than that. Wonder is a, a virtue. You know, you can be a scientist with a sense of virtue or with a sense of wonder or not. You can be an environmentalist with a sense of wonder or not. You can be a, a tourist with a sense of wonder or not. That's really up to you. But what Hebrews exhorts us to is to have a sense of wonder at the idea that Jesus has created the universe. All right, I want to slow down here for a second um, because there's a hard turn in the passage here in verse 3 from talking about the grandeur of God and the grandeur of who Jesus is to talking about what Jesus accomplishes. And um, if we go too quickly from one point to the next, we'll kind of miss the, the connector between the two. So I want us to slow down to, to think about the fact that Jesus is the one who creates everything around us. He is a sense of wonder about who he is. And how does he use that power? How does he use the power he has? This is the last part of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus uses his power to make purification for sin. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, what does he use that power to do? To come near in Christmas, to be born in poverty and in weakness, so that he might give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus uses his power to be the pathway for us to come to God. He uses his power to come near to you and to me, to serve and to give up his life for us. And Jesus is uniquely able to do this because he is the one who is both fully God and fully man. He comes human in order to save humanity from our sin. As Gregory the theologian said in the fourth century, what he has not assumed, he has not healed. And so he is fully human. He has a fully human nature. He's not God just operating uh, for a time, pretending to be a person, but he is fully human like you and I are, with a full human nature, and yet still fully God, able to make purification for our sins because he lives the life that we should have lived and refused to. And he died the death that you and I deserve. And now he's raised and sits at the right hand of God. And he changes religion after that forever. He changes what it means to come to God after that forever. Because rather than us trying to climb up a hill to get to God, he has come near to be with us. And rather than us trying to figure out a way to get ourselves clean, he has made us clean. And as one Scottish theologian said, if something is going to get clean, something else has to get dirty. If something is going to get clean, something else has to get dirty. And Jesus takes on our filth on himself. And as Hebrews 10, 14 says, by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Wow, I hope there's a sense of wonder in that for you. The idea that God would take on your sin on himself and that he would offer for you to be perfected and sanctified 
for all time. If that doesn't give us a sense of wonder, we need to, we need to open our hearts to God and say, God, I want to be amazed by that afresh this morning. And if that's something you've never wondered about, you've never thought about, you've never taken God up on, please take Jesus up on this offer. Receive this gift. He has died for your sins and for mine. He's offered to perfect you for all time if you'll turn to him. As Romans 10 says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Well, it matters that Jesus has died for us, and also matters that he sits at the right hand of God. He has made the way for us to come to God, and he makes the way for us to come to God. He's both died so that we might be with God forever, and he continually intercedes on our behalf before God. As Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Who is there to condemn you? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And it goes on in Romans 8 to say, because of that, because Jesus has died for us, because he is the right hand of God, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Not heights or depths or anything in all creation. Because he is the right hand of power, at the right hand of God, there is a sense of wonder. He has become superior to everything. In verse 4, it says specifically that he's be, become superior to any other messenger of God. He's become superior to angels as much as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs because Jesus is the perfect messenger of God. He perfectly represents the Father. He's at the Father's right hand. And there's never going to be a time that someone needs to fill in the gaps of what he got wrong. Jesus is compared to angels because angels represented the messengers of God. They were the ones who would reveal to humanity what God's will was for them. We see that uh, in the Christmas time, in the Christmas story especially, right? It's angels who come to tell Mary that she's going to be uh, the mother of Jesus. It's angels who come to Joseph to say, there's more going on here than you understand. It's angels who come to, shepherd, to the shepherds and say that they are going to see something wonderful that night. And it's angels who point us for a time to something wonderful. But Hebrews says, oh, Jesus is so much better than an angel. Angels can only show us in part what the Son can show us in full. Hebrews makes the point that Jesus is the perfect messenger for God because he is God himself. Now, imagine if I asked you to explain to me what the royal family is like, the English royal family specifically. Um, you might say, you know, I don't really follow that stuff. Uh, I, there's a queen, right? And then there's Prince Charles. And then he was married to a lady, die, and then she, she died, and that was sad, and that's kind of all I know. And then your friend might say, oh, I know a lot more. I watched The Crown on Netflix. I know all about this, right? So <laughs> there, there, are, there are these people, and there are these people, and they don't like each other, and then, and then there's new actors in the new season, and I, I got this all figured out. But you know what? No matter how much you, you like about following the English royal family from a distance, your understanding would always be limited, just like mine would be, as evidenced by that sermon illustration. Um, that, that there's only so much any of us can know, right? N none of us have been there on Christmas morning and really know what the dynamic is like in the family. No one, none of us really know what it's like to either feel the weight of being the one who's going to wear the crown or the envy of being the one who watches your sister wear the crown. Like, none of us know from inside what it's really like. And that's such a small thing compared to the firsthand experience that Jesus offers. Jesus shows us what it really is like to be part of the family of God. Imagine if Prince William came in, uh, I assume with bodyguards or whatever, and said, you want to know what it's like to be part of the royal family? Ask me. I know. I can tell you. I can tell you what it's really like. We would have such a sense of wonder at being able to have that access, that sense of, uh, man, you actually know. Tell me what it's like. 
And he is a man, right? A man who's going to live and die in just a hair's breadth of time. And yet the Son of God has come and shown us what God the Father is like. He is so much greater and more wonderful than any messenger we could ever receive from uh, any angel we could see or any other messenger that could try to tell us what really matters in the world. And yet so often we fall for messengers that try to tell us what life is all about that are so much smaller even than angels. We turn to our friends to tell us what really matters in life. We turn to social media influencers to tell us what really matters in life. We turn to media authorities to tell us what we should live and value and put as our priorities. Yet what Hebrews says is we should turn to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who can show us truly what it means to live a meaningful life with God. Well, we got to end here. How are you doing at Wonder this Christmas? How wonderful is your Christmas? Now, I, I, I'm not trying to tell you to muster up wonder. I'm not trying to tell you to like leave here and be like, all right, I got to go be more amazed by Christmas trees this week. Like, you can't, you can't fake wonder. You can't cause yourself to be wondered. But, but wonder requires some humility. It's going to require humility on your part and on my part to be willing to say, God, I don't have you all figured out. I don't know how all this works. I don't uh, have a, uh, a sort of cynical, Grinch-like explanation for everything around me. God, would you humble my heart and give me a sense of wonder at the infinity at the infinite idea of you becoming man. Because I think if we have a sense of wonder this Christmas about things that really matter, about the fact that God has come and dwelt among us, then it'll give us a sense of joy at following Jesus for the year to come. Let's close our time in prayer together. Jesus, we celebrate you this Advent season, and we celebrate with joy uh, because we know who you are. And because we know who you are, we know who your Father is in a way that no one else could tell us. No prophet, no angel, no priest, no philosopher. And because we know who your Father is and we know who you are, and because you have sent your Spirit to teach us and lead us into all truth, we're able to slough off the messages of this world. Thank you that you came not to judge the world, but to save the world and help us through your Spirit to worship you with celebration this December season. In your name we pray, amen. In these last couple of moments this morning, let's, let's take this time to respond uh, to this great God through a reminder of the hope that he gives, the life that comes from him. And we're learning this new song for Advent, and uh, we want to try it again this morning. So join with us and just kind of jump in as soon as you get it. We hear the angels sing, there's hope for to announce our King, there's hope forever.